You can be seated. If you have children that you'd like to send to children's ministry, you're welcome to do that right now. So last week, I might turn my microphone down a little bit. I'll, I'll project if I need to. Last week, we spoke about hell, so this week we need to speak about... Wrong, purgatory. <laughs> so let me give you all the Bible says about purgatory real quick. There you go, not a thing. Yeah, you're right, we're going to talk about heaven today. I was thinking about, uh, about governors, not, not the political office, but the thing that they put on cars to make sure they don't go too fast. Way back in my Golden Corral days... If you're visiting, that was not my last job. It was, I didn't leave Golden Corral to come here, but it was my first job at Golden Corral in Jefferson City, Missouri, and there was a guy named Gary who worked there, and I just thought, man, Gary was it. Gary had a blonde mullet and a mustache, and I just thought he was, you know, ten kinds of cool. And he told me one time, you know, he was always dropping wisdom on me, you know, as the older guy, he's probably 22, you know, uh, always dropping wisdom on me. He told me, if, when you go to the Lake of the Ozarks next time and you get on the go-karts, if you reach back behind you to the motor, there's a governor that keeps the throttle from going too fast, and you can kind of mess with that and release it, and the go-kart will go twice as fast as it could before you move, you mess with that governor. And so I, uh, I took a date to the Lake of the Ozarks, which is kind of what you do to impress a girl from mid-Missouri. And, uh, and then we went to the go-kart track, which is like, that's like a step above what you do to impress. Usually it's skee-ball or putt-putt golf, but we went on the go-kart track, and it was my first chance to be on the go-kart track, and so I did what, the, what Gary told me to do. I reached behind me as I'm driving, and I start messing with this thing, and I'm kind of having trouble finding it, but eventually I do find it, and I, I pull this governor off, and sure enough, the motor had much more power than it did before, and I made my way around the track. I was the king of the track at this point. You know, no one could touch me. But when I get to the top of the track, the owner of the track stands in the middle of the track and forces me to stop at his feet. And he says, you need to leave. And I said, why? He says, because you were messing with the governor. And I said, no, I wasn't. And he said, look at your hands, son. And I looked at my hand, it's just coated in grease. And, uh, and so that was the, my experience with governors. And the reason why I was thinking about that was because God has placed a curse on the world that serves, Romans 8 tells us, as a kind of governor. Um, there's a limiter on the potential goodness of this world. God has placed a curse of futility, is how Romans 8 would describe it, on this world, which makes everything sort of limited. And he does that because he's matching our sinful state after the fall. Simply put, we can't handle, as fallen humans, we can't handle full-octane creation anymore. So everything we've ever experienced about the goodness of creation has been massively governed or limited to match our fallen and futile state. Um, and that means that we have built into us created as we were, we have built into us the expectation for this created world to be far more glorious than it ever can be, apart from God making all things new. There's a German word um, called verschmert, or verschmert, and it, it means, velschmert, that's right, 
It means uh, world pain. And it describes a world weariness that you feel when you perceive that there's a mismatch between your ideal hope for the world and what the world really is. And this all ties into this concept of heaven because we're constantly confusing heaven, earth for heaven, right? We're, we're, constantly, we're constantly hoping to wring more goodness and more glory out of this world than what is actually possible. Um, Psalm 87 is the text for today, and that's, that's, that's what I think is happening at some level in Psalm 87. I would say at the very best, the psalmist is probably a little confused. He is praising Jerusalem, the earthly city. But the vision that he is given from the spirit who's inspiring him, the vision he has of Jerusalem is much bigger and better than what Jerusalem would ever be. So he's writing this psalm that can at times almost feel idolatrous toward a city. He's writing a psalm to a city, right? Which seems strange. He's writing a poem to this magnificent place. The thing is, the place isn't entirely real. It's overly romanticized. It's, it's overly idealized. The Spirit's giving the psalmist a vision of a city called Zion, but it's not the Zion that this psalmist would have ever been to. The Spirit is working through this psalmist to, 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 to communicate two things, to communicate the glory, the limited glory of the earthly Jerusalem, while simultaneously working to communicate the glory of the eternal Jerusalem. When Jesus came, he, he really helped us understand that there was a second level to the temple and a second level to Jerusalem and a second level to the idea of the promised land and that all those things ultimately found their fulfillment in him and his eternal kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth. So what we're going to do today is we're going to read through Psalm 87 and we're going to understand that as the psalmist is writing this, he's conceiving of a Jerusalem that never happened. He's romanticizing idealizing a Jerusalem that never came to be on this side of heaven and earth. But the Spirit is working through the psalmist to communicate something about the eternal glory we will experience in the new heavens and the new earth. So let me read the whole psalm to you. It's Psalm 87, beginning in verse 1. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God, Selah. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon, and behold, Philistia and Tyre and Cush. This one was born there, they say, and of Zion it shall be said, the one, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there, Salah. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. So four points today, give them to you in advance. It's a better city that we're going to see today, a better citizenship, a better commission, and a better communion. Obviously, as far as the better city idea goes, this is a psalm celebrating the city of Jerusalem. It's probably difficult for us to understand 
how important geography was to the Jewish religion and how important geography remains to Judaism. But this psalm shows you like how interconnected they are. He is, he is celebrating a city in the same way we would see a psalmist celebrate God himself. The two things are very connected for the psalmist. In fact, in verse 3, he says, Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. And this isn't the only time you'll see a psalm like this, by the way. And so one of the things that I do on a daily basis is to read through the psalms. And you'll come across psalms that have this extremely venerated view of of Jerusalem. And you're like, well, what do I do with this? You know, you're reading this for your devotional in the morning. What do I do with this? Well, what we're going to do today is what you do with this. You you understand that look through the words and see the glory of heaven standing on the other side of these words. So this is a big deal to them, Jerusalem is. And I was thinking about, well, why? You know, why is this such a big deal? Well, first of all, they saw it as their inheritance from God, right? They also thought of it as the home, the resting place of their, their heroes, their forefathers, And they thought it was like the best land, you know, the land flowing with milk and honey. So those are some of the reasons why they were so excited about the idea of Jerusalem. But of course, however important Jerusalem was to the Jews, heaven would be much more important to us for the very same reasons. Heaven is a much more glorious place than the glory described in this text. But you can see... You could see peeking through the words something deeper and something better. For instance, they're excited about the idea of having this heavenly city. Not not a heavenly city. They're excited about having this earthly city. They're excited about having Jerusalem because they view it as their inheritance. Okay, so what does the Bible say about our inheritance as followers of Jesus? Well, take 1 Peter 1, verse 3, for instance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, they were... They were exalting in the city of Jerusalem because they thought of it as an inheritance. But of course, this inheritance was extremely tenuous. It was revocable. They could screw it up. It could be taken away. It was routinely taken away. And so we look through that curtain and we see something deeper and we see, well, you know, they had an inheritance that was extremely tentative, extraordinarily fragile. I have a inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading the land i'm headed to is is way better than what they're celebrating Uh, they thought of it as the land of their heroic forefathers right but then of course you look through those words a little bit you think well wait a minute what does hebrews 11 say hebrews 11 13 describing all of the heroes of the faith these all died in faith not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who spake thus made it clear they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. 
But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So, so another reason why the Jews gloried in Jerusalem was like, well, this is the home of our heroes. This is the home of our forefathers. Like, well, not really, actually. Actually, all of the heroes of the faith saw this world as not their home, right? They were looking for a better city. So, so heaven is actually the home for the heroes of the faith and for our forefathers. And then, of course, you know, they saw it as sort of this choice piece of property, this best place on earth. But again, if they gloried in Jerusalem as this piece of choice geography, how much more so do we glory in what heaven is for us? Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So, so they're looking to this city, Jerusalem, they're thinking, man, it's, 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 it's our inheritance. Well, yeah, but it's, it's, it's quite tentative and quite temporary. Like, well, it's the home of our heroes. Well, not really, because all of your heroes were looking for a better country. Like, well, but, but it's this choice land. Well, I mean, you're going to have famines. It's going to fall. There's not going to be a single rock on top of each other, uh, Jesus says in Luke 10, when the judgment comes in 70 AD. It's not really that choice. All of the things they were glorying in have a much higher and better fulfillment in heaven, in God's reward for the saints. Okay, so what does that do for us? What that does for us is it helps us to understand, if you wanted to just do a basic kind of math problem, you might say Jerusalem equals whatever circumstance you think you really want. And heaven equals what God's going to give you instead. Right? In other words... Jerusalem equals, what do you glory in? What do you really hope for? What, what, sort, of, what sort of course of your life do you really wish that your, the, your life would take? What, what's the highest of highs that you can imagine? That's, that's what you want. That's what you think is praiseworthy. And heaven is actually what God's going to give you, which is far more exceedingly above all you can ask or imagine. One of the things that's on a governor, by the way, thankfully, that God has placed limitations on is our own imagination. And that's really good because if we had full octane imaginations, we would be in an even greater mess than we are right now. But one of the things that does against us is, is we have trouble imagining just how good, just how glorious God will be to us. So Jerusalem kind of stands in for, and you could fill in the blank with anything, Jerusalem stands in for the thing you think you want. The thing you think is praiseworthy, is glorious, is good. The goal, the ambition. And heaven stands in for what God's actually going to do. Far greater and above whatever you could ask or imagine. So, so that's one thing. We've got this better city. but We've also got this better citizenship. 
Look back at the psalm. In verses 4, 5, and 6, this phrase keeps appearing, and it's kind of lunky in the English. It's kind of rough to read. It, it keeps saying, this one was born here, right? This one was born here. This one was born here. Three times, verses 4, 5, and 6. Well, even in the Old Testament, there was a problem with false citizenship. Um, this one was born here is kind of what we would think of as birthright citizenship. It's like, you were born here, this is really your home. You were born here, you definitely belong. In the Old Testament, this is a theme that develops later in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we don't really get it when we're reading it until we get to the New. But it turns out there are a whole bunch of people who are sons of Abraham that aren't sons of Abraham. It turns out there are a whole bunch of people that are within the collective of God's children that aren't God's children. They're false citizens. They have the right address, but they don't have the right attitude. So so they might be in the right place, but their heart isn't in the right place. And as you read the Old Testament, you see that these folks are constantly struggling to take hold of or keep or expand the land that God had given them. So that even when they got to it, if they could enter it, even when they did enter it, they failed to keep it. They could not truly enter, Hebrews says, into God's rest. Why? Because though they had the right address, though they, they were in the right place, their hearts were still full of bondage to sin. Now what you see that's really interesting unfold in the New Testament is that just as in Psalm 87, this is mentioned three times, this one was born here, this one was born here, this one was born here, we turn to John 3. And Jesus is speaking to someone who considers himself a true citizen, a true son of Abraham, Nicodemus. And he says to Nicodemus three times, you must be born again. Verse 3, verse 5, and verse 7, I believe, he says repeatedly, truly I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes, where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So the Old Testament problem was God was giving a physical land for them to occupy that required a spiritual reality they did not possess. They were consistently given over to grumbling and unbelief. They were consistently given over to laziness and timidity and cowardice. Their hearts weren't changed. And because their hearts weren't changed, they couldn't even occupy the temporal, physical gift that God had given them. So now we get to the New Testament and we see, well, there's a, there's a different citizenship. There's a different citizenship plan through the covenant of Jesus, through the new covenant. And that, that citizenship plan is, is that in order for you to take hold of the kingdom of God, in order for you to, to see heaven as your ultimate home, he actually causes you to be born again into that kingdom by the spirit of that kingdom. So it, Psalm 87, they're saying, you know, Jerusalem's going to be so great one day. The nations are going to be gathered in and and we're going to be able to say this one was born here and this one was born here and this one was born here. In other words, they're really one of us. But no matter where they were born, they weren't born again. 
Their hearts weren't transformed. And because their hearts weren't transformed, they weren't able to hold on to what God had given them. So what's that mean for us? Well, I mean, it means a couple of things. First of all, it means, it, it means that, that even the practical gifts and circumstances that God places in your life and gives you and blesses you, even those circumstances for which you long, friends, they're just not going to be worth anything if your heart isn't right. The, the very stuff that you think you need would be squandered if your heart isn't sanctified in Jesus. The very circumstances you think would be the improvement and upgrade for which you're longing, you would simply squander those as the Jews squandered the promised land repeatedly if your heart isn't made right. But it also means, it also means incredibly that when God was calling many sons to glory, as we sung about this morning, when he was calling citizens into this new kingdom, into the kingdom of God, he started by making us born there. And now all we're doing is just finding our way back to the place we were born. Jesus says we've got to be born of the Spirit to go to the kingdom of the Spirit. So that's pretty cool. In fact, there's, a, there's another parallel in verse 7. In, in Psalm 87, verse 7, it says, The Lord records as he registers the people. So you've literally got in Psalm 87 this picture of a book of life. A, a, a foreshadowing of this idea that, that, that the Lord is standing there with a book saying, you're in, you're not in, you're in, you're not in. And of course, that's exactly what we see come to fruition in the gospel. Psalm, or Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple. This is the, the, the view of the final, the ultimate, the better city. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That, that passage there in Revelation also mentions the nations, and that, that brings us to the third point. We've got a better city, we've got a better citizenship, but also got a better commission Look at verses 4 through 6 in Psalm 87. It says, Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia, uh, Tyre, and Cush. This one was born there, they said. So what's going on there? What's going on in verses 4 through 6? Well, Rahab is another word for Egypt. Babylon is another word for Babylon. These are superpowers. They're the, they're the, they're the big nations. They're the, they're the ones that are really, really in charge at the time. And then Philistia is a local group that they were constantly having trouble with. Tyra is a, is a merchant class of people. Cush is Ethiopia, which just kind of signals it's really far away. 
So none of these people worshiped God at the time. And this is why I could tell you that the writer of this psalm wasn't thinking about a Jerusalem he'd ever been to. Because he's imagining a Jerusalem filled with the nations. And that never happened. He's imagining a Jerusalem filled with the nations of people who are there to worship God. And that never happened. Not in the way that's described here. And what you've got here is you've got a Great Commission vision that was tasked to someone as early as Abraham, for instance, you know, all of the world would be blessed by you. You've got a vision of the nations being brought in to the city of God, but not an earthly city because that hasn't happened and won't. This is one massive area of disobedience for the Jews. They became ingrown. And because they would not invade the nations with the light, they became invaded by the darkness of their enemies. Because they would not lead the nations to love God, they allowed the nations to seduce them to love foreign gods. Israel constantly rejected God's call for them to be a light to the nations. When we get to the New Jerusalem, we see that this commission that God has placed on his people from day one when he said to rule and subdue by being fruitful and multiplying, this has always been God's intention. We see that this commission is fulfilled through Jesus. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lord, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This idea is that the heavenly city, the ultimate Jerusalem, is going to be home to all the nations. There's this little exquisite line in Galatians verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 26, Paul says it this way. The Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. That, that ties directly into Psalm 87 in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version uh, of the Old Testament. In the Septuagint, in Psalm 87, it literally says, Jerusalem is our mother, the mother of the nations. So that gathering... This fulfillment of the Great Commission is part of our future. It's part of our future glory. Um, Jonathan Edwards, he talked a lot about hell, yes. But man, he talked a lot about heaven as well. And one of the things you find people celebrating most when they think about heaven is the fellowship they will have there. Not simply the fellowship they will have there with their loved ones, but the fellowship they will have there with all of the people of God. Listen, listen to how Edwards describes this idea of the nations being brought in together. Heaven is the place that God has built for himself and his children. God has many children, and the place designed for them is heaven. And therefore the saints, being the children of God, are said to be of the one household of God. Ephesians 2.19, now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. God is represented as a householder or the head of a family. And heaven is his house. In heaven, we will dwell together with God. 
we will gather as a joyful family to celebrate the one who has called us to himself. We will experience perfect communion and intimate fellowship with one another and with our God. And we will make our way to our mansion and take unforeseen delight in the home prepared for us. So what does that do for us? Well, the German word that I can't pronounce, uh, it's massively important to apply that to the deep desires you have for a level of connection that is beyond likely what you'll experience here. If you're, if you're newly married, um, I don't know how far you're into this process, but eventually you figure out it's possible to be married and lonely. It, you eventually figure that out, that it's possible to be married and lonely. It's not, it's not the, uh, the plan. It's not definitely the goal, but man, it happens. It's possible to be a faithful member of a church and be lonely. It's, it's, it's possible all too often to see human relationships, even those that we hold out as meaningful and important and means of grace, which they are, it's possible to get a worldly sorrow out of what they could be and what they actually are. I talked a little bit about uh, a little bit ago about a full octane reality that God is. God has placed a curse of futility on all things in this world so that it matches our sinful nature. And so we, we don't really know full octane beauty. We don't, we've never seen a full octane sunset, sunset. We've also never had a full octane friendship. We've never felt a full octane hug. We've never felt a hug the way that hugs are meant to be felt. We've never had a single friendship, no matter how close, the way that friendships are meant to be had. That's for heaven. That's for our future city. So one of the implications here is that this greater commission we have, God is gathering in the nations and he's gathering in the nations to this heavenly city where this holy, dynamic, I mean, unfathomably deep friendship will be in the air everywhere in a way that I, I honestly cannot imagine. And that's the goal, my friends. That's the goal of the Great Commission, by the way. You know, back in East, back in St. Louis, we live close to East St. Louis, you know, sizable African-American community. And they do this one thing really well. They, they, they do family reunions that are too big that you would, you would, you don't even, you would just have to take for word, you know, by, by someone's word that they're part of the family. But the key is, is that it, it, you could make a ton of money if you live in the right city for this. They plan these massive family reunions and, um, and, and maybe like once every five years or something like that. And they, they get t-shirts printed, you know, let's say like, you know, the Oswald family reunion. And they're always like cheesy looking t-shirts, you know, airbrushed or whatever. And, and they get these t-shirts printed and you have to have the t-shirt on. And then you, so then you walk into a restaurant or something in St. Louis and you see like, like a hundred people with the same cheesy t-shirt on and you, and you see them and they're, they're, they're engaged in fellowship. They're engaged in reunion. I mean, the Psalm or the revelation, the, the, the text for revelation I just read, this, this picture of a group of people who have all been handed white robes. 
have all been handed entire perfect sanctification. Right? That's, that's the picture there. Sinlessness, perfection. You've just been handed a glorified body, a glorified mind, a glorified capacity to love, a glorified capacity to receive love. And everybody's just walking around in their new t-shirts, engaged in glorious fellowship. What we do when we pursue the Great Commission is we arrange a reunion that will one day be eternal. So it's the it's better city, it's a better citizenship, it's it's a better uh, commission, but really is all about a better communion. The one reason why they loved Jerusalem was because it was where God dwelled. That's what communion means to, to dwell. That's why verse three they say. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Now get this. The dwelling of God in Jerusalem was fractionally, fractionally what it is in you if you're a follower of Jesus. I want you to think about that for a minute. The highest glory of God's dwelling presence in the temple was secondary to the glory you now possess as a bearer of his spirit. He dwells in you. If you're a follower of Jesus, the spirit dwells in you. God dwells in you. They thought that Jerusalem was this amazing place because you could, if you had all of the right access and pedigree and and didn't get toasted alive, you could make it into the Holy of Holies and see the glory of God. And friends, like, What it means to be in a church and what it means to be amongst Christians is is that the person to my right or my left who has Jesus has the glory of God dwelling inside them. They have the spirit of God. God is dwelling in our midst in a way that that the psalm writer of Psalm 87 would have found absolutely unbelievable. We have a better communion with God. We have a better access to God even now. And of course, the whole trajectory of scripture is, is that it just keeps getting better so that one day we will see God. We will be with God. We will dwell in a city illumined by Jesus. That's the better communion. The whole point of heaven is that the reason why heaven is good is that Jesus is there. So let's just talk about some application to this. First of all, big one, especially as we talked about hell last week. Are you a citizen? Have you been born again? Have you been born again? The Puritans made a distinction between what they called a professor of Christianity and a possessor of Christianity. A professor was someone who said they believed in Jesus. But that's not the same thing as being a possessor. That Jesus lives inside of you, that you've been born again, that you've been made new. So the most important question when we talk about heaven and we talk about it as a city is like, are you a citizen? Have you been born again? Because that's how one becomes a citizen. Do you see the joy in the Great Commission? 
That might be one good question to ask. Do you see joy in working, in spending your life arranging for this eternal reunion in which the nations will be brought in to worship together? Do you see the joy of knowing other Christians? Are you consciously, intentionally enjoying spending time with people who have the Lord living inside of them. So the most obvious question, I think, or application comes from what the psalm says in verse 7. It says in verse 7, Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. What does that mean? Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. Well, what, what are singers and dancers? Well, they're the worshipers. They're the worshipers of God. And what is the heart of a true worshiper? Well, the heart of the true worshiper says that anything that's good is good because God's in it. That God's the source of it. That God's the ultimate end for it. So when it says all my springs, it means all my joy, all my life, all my pleasures, all the things I love, all the things I want, they all are in you, O Lord. So one of the most important questions of application, I steal from John Piper, and that is simply this, is heaven primarily glorious to you because Jesus is there? Piper asks it this way, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Is the goal of eternal glory communion with Jesus? That's what makes heaven better. Jesus is there, and then at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. I have a word I just want to share, and I don't I, I don't entirely know how how this will come off, but it occurred to me this week as I was praying that. Some of you have known the Lord long enough to know that he loves you. And I just want to tell you that if the love of God can't satisfy you, I want you to understand that nothing will. So that the goal isn't to go out and try to find a better city, another circumstance, because there isn't anything better than what he's already offering you. He's offering you his love. And if the love of God does not satisfy you, then you cannot be satisfied. And you will not be satisfied. And the problem isn't with your circumstances. It isn't with what city you find yourself in. It's with your heart. It's a scary place to be. I think I felt this. It's a scary place to be when you realize that 
God is pouring out his love to me in all of the ways that you would expect him to do so in his word, through the affirmation of others, even favorable circumstances. God is pouring out his love and my heart remains unsatisfied. It's scary. What do you do with that? Well, I think what you do is you go back and say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Something's not right. But I am done assuming that what could make it right is a change in circumstance, a change in location. I am done with that nonsense. Because if the overflowing, overwhelming love of God, the source of all the springs of pleasure, the source of all the springs of goodness, if that isn't satisfying my thirst, it ain't the water's fault. (laughs) Something's not right. Lord God, help me. Help me. Well, I'll introduce communion this way. The end of the book of Revelation. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And the what the one who desires to take water of life without price. God has shown his love in this, that while we were still sinners, he gave us his most precious gift, Jesus. He has demonstrated his love for you through the gospel. He has shouted it from the rooftops that he has the best. That he is the all-satisfying one, that he is the source of all the springs. He has shown you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's what we celebrate with communion. If you find yourself in the place where you're saying, I intellectually accept that God should be satisfying me now, but he is not. And what I would ask you to do is you'd come to communion with a prayer and say, You have shown me all I need to see. Now help me see. Help me see. I don't need any more evidence from you. I need the ability to see the evidence you've already presented that Jesus Christ has been offered up for me to come and partake of the table today.